I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. My guest is Brisha Wade. She's a writer, grief expert, a Buddhist chaplain, and a birth doula. And she's the author of a profoundly wise new book, Grieving While Black, an anti-racist take on oppression and sorrow, which explores grief in its many forms and brings a broad spiritual perspective to the experience and understanding of grief throughout our lives. I'd like to start by reading something from your book, where you say, I am a Southern Baptist-raised black woman and practicing Buddhist from Chester, South Carolina. This is a topic very close to my heart, a topic that has permeated my experience as a human being and as a black woman observing the unspeakable tragedies committed by and against a people, tragedies kept alive by silences haunting generations, memories recorded in bodies, restless and weary, all waiting to be spoken. When I heard these ghosts knocking in the closets of my unconscious, I was afraid to answer for fear of the questions they might bring. What unwanted light in my mind would be shed on a community that is already so laden with brokenness and shame? Who was I, to disturb the voices of generations buried for the sake of our or my survival? And who was I to build on top of these voices a life where the past no longer threatened to undo the present? But I chose my life over fear. When I opened the door and listened, I learned that these ghosts were not our enemies, but our friends. And although many of them bore truths that cracked the rocky foundation of my own identity and perception, and perception they offered hope. We are here to heal. Could you talk more about that haunting and what that meant for you? Absolutely. Um, thank you for reading that passage and for inviting me to start there. Because for me, that is really where the journey starts. I mentioned growing up in South Carolina, and South Carolina has its own complicated and traumatic racial history that is still very much alive in the present. And I don't think it's unique, you know, that racial history is unique to South Carolina or Southern states in general, um, as the past four years have shown us. It's just more palpable there. But having grown up in South Carolina and having been raised in a, a Southern Baptist tradition, 
where, you know, my grandmother and, and great, great, great aunts and, and great aunts where, you know, I lived in a community where there is a lot of closeness. Um, and I felt very connected to ancestral memory and knowledge. Um, I was just keenly aware of the things that my ancestors and loved ones had to do for survival, you know, the knowledge that they had to hide within certain Christian practices. And I, you know, as I grew up and, and, and went off to school, I became more educated and aware of exactly what they were doing and how and where certain practices and certain beliefs came from. And reflecting on that, you know, it's no secret that part of being African-American and being black in the United States is just being constantly ripped from our humanity. And that has been an experience since we were, you know, first brought onto this land. And that is something that continues to be prevalent, you know, where we're so caught up in survival while constantly navigating these assaults against our humanity and our spirits that we're not able to really attend to our own grief, um, both from what's been done to us and what continues to be done to us and just, you know, the inherent grief of being human because we're so consistently ripped from that experience of being human. And then there's so much shame embedded within that, that I feel that, you know, many of us don't have the opportunity or space to address, whether it's from lack of resources, a lack of uh, knowledge, a lack of, of safe space, a lack of time, you know, whatever it might be. I found that many black folks in the U.S. just don't have the, aren't presented with the opportunity to explore the gift of ourselves. And it's one thing to have that experience and to um, delve into that on a personal level and privately. And it's another to open up those wounds publicly, as it's the case with that book, in a country where our humanity and vulnerability is so readily exploited. Thank you so much for sharing that. You continue by writing, we can ignore the knockings of these ghosts of grief so that we don't have to look them in the face but we can't avoid the impact of the haunt or what our fear and sadness cause us to inflict upon people around us. We have a moral obligation to attend to our own grief and to interact responsibly with the grief of others. Could you talk about that moral obligation we have and the consequences of not attending to our own grief? Absolutely. I think one of the most insidious impacts of both white supremacy and any form of systemic oppression, whether it's sexism, um, homophobia, whatever it is, is that it removes us from ourselves so that we can't attend to that moral obligation. And there is a spiritual death that accompanies the physical death and threats that black people, women, LGBTQ people are facing on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, that moral obligation is about grief specifically and the inherent grief that simply comes with being human. And what I mean by that is, you know, we all have a relationship to grief by virtue of the fact that we are aware of the reality of impermanence or loss. 
and whether or not, you know, for most folks, I, I feel that that awareness isn't at the top of mind. You know, we, we don't think about grief until we've experienced some profound trauma or some concrete loss. But the reality of being mortal, you know, of being beings that are constantly undergoing change and transitions, we are intimately aware of what it means to experience impermanence. Therefore, we are intimately aware of the prevalence of grief in our lives. And attending to that, you know, attending to that fear of loss um, and that suffering and the suffering that results from it is imperative. So we aren't driven by it. And by that, I mean we aren't allowing that fear to drive us towards actions that strip other people of their humanity or drive us towards actions that strip us of our own humanity, whether that's the anger as a result of that fear and lashing out, which is, you know, I talk in the book about how I believe that systemic oppression is is a direct result of unresolved fear of loss or unaddressed fear of loss and grief. Or, you know, it could be avoidance. It could be poor boundaries with ourselves and others. There's so many things that are downstream effects from the avoidance uh, or lack of awareness of how grief and, and fear of loss is just intimately tied to our existence. And you write that this book is meant to elucidate grief in all of its forms and to provide a map back to ourselves that allows us to encounter our wholeness without fear while showing up to do the long-term work that needs to be done. Why are people so uncomfortable and averse to connecting with their own grief? I feel that people understandably have an aversion to and avoid the unknown. And when you speak of grief, we're talking about a loss, a a change, a transition that is just filled with not knowing, not to mention the associated fear of powerlessness that comes with it, because often grief and those transitions aren't consensual. You know, there's something that's happening that we either wish weren't happening or... (laughs) you know, wish would happen differently in order for us to move out of a a state with which we're comfortable, whether it's being alive, being healthy, being in a job we like, being in a relationship with the person we love, you know, even when things aren't quite working in that relationship. So I feel that a lot of people are afraid of what they don't know, and they're afraid of that sense of powerlessness, which they often conflate with helplessness. Mm-hmm. And you say that grief is bigger than just our reaction to single events of loss or death, that grief is an ongoing state of being inextricably connected to everything in our lives. Could you begin by defining what grief is and talk about some of the different forms and how they arise within us? Absolutely. So a couple of terms and phrases I've used thus far are impermanent and fear of loss. And the reason I use those is because I feel that they give more room for interpretation for what grief actually looks like and how we often experience it outside of concrete loss. Usually when I say grief, people think of a 
they have a, a very specific and, I guess, limited definition. But when I say fear of loss, fear of loss is something that is projected into the future. You know, it's something that hasn't happened yet. It's something you experience in the present moment and that you can imagine and touch just by virtue of the fact that you're experiencing it right now. But the fact that it's uh, within the, the, the term and the definition of fear of loss, you know, you, you recognize that the loss hasn't occurred, yet the grief is very much in this present moment. And impermanence, it just touches on the reality of, you know, constant change and transitions, which is very much tied to the way that I, you know, define grief and the type of grief I'm talking about. And when I say it permeates our existence and it's part of our day-to-day lives, I feel that one of the common forms that grief takes, especially now, is anxiety. You know, anxiety is specifically the fear of the unknown, and it is almost inextricably tied to fear of loss. You know, losing your comfort and not knowing what is going to happen in the next moment that can change your current circumstances. And it also looks like worry. You know, I think about people I've known throughout my life who have had wonderful lives, you know, folks who are well off, you know, making at least six figures a year with loving families, wonderful careers, and still they are driven by this constant anxiety or or worry of what next or what will happen if I don't get this report in on time or what will my coworkers think if I make this statement or if I sound silly in my next presentation. And all of that is tied to some sort of fear of loss, whether it's fearing loss of of respect, fearing loss of connection, fearing loss of a paycheck, (laughs) which is directly tied to our ability to survive. But that's not how it's often thought of. You know, it's not frequently put in those terms. And you had mentioned that grief is often connected with our own sense of survival and fear of loss. And you also say that it makes us vulnerable to doing things against ourselves, like selling ourselves out. And you also talk about how marginalized and oppressed people are often sold out or they're forced to sell themselves out to accommodate the dominant white society in ways that often seem like walking on eggshells or through a minefield. Mm -hmm. And I think children, many children understand that who grow up with parents who are unstable or have their ups and downs, who live with a kind of fear of their parents going off on them. Yeah. I'd like to start with an image of classism and how that works. And this is going to be a very generic example. Imagine, (laughs) in my mind, I have an image of Victorian England, possibly because I was just uh, watching Bridgerton. But uh, (laughs) um, if you look at class structures and what they're meant to do and who they're meant to benefit and how, and the sacrifice of, you know, one group of people so that the other has more time or safety and more freedom. Um, I see that extending down into a variety of social relationships. So, for example, you know, rich people, I guess I don't even have to go back to Victoria and England, even though Bridgerton is on my mind. I can just, you know, think about now. You know, we say time is money and money is time. 
And when we talk about a lifetime and what we're measuring, ultimately that's tied to time. And frequently wealthy people have more safety. They have more access to things they need. That could be medicine. That can be doctors. They tend to have more space physically and mentally and emotionally. And with that, they can engage in activities that they find joyful and meaningful. They can spend more time with family members and friends, and that that time is, is valuable because we only have a finite amount of it. And I touched on safety, but, I mean, even now, if you look at COVID-19, folks who have a certain amount of money and resources don't have to worry about putting their lives in direct danger because somebody else is going to do that for them. You know, somebody else is going to be running the grocery store who has less money and less choices and, and access to things so that people who are more comfortable can sit at home with their families and not have to have that same impending doom of, am I going to get sick? Am I going to take this back to my family? Well, I have to do this because I need a paycheck. I need to pay my rent. I need to have health insurance. I need to take care of my kids. So I think that dynamic ends up being played out, you know, within gender dynamics. So, for example, within patriarchy, there are certain things that women are expected and, you know, frequently socially and financially coerced into doing, into being, so that men have more freedom, whether it's having the bulk of responsibility when it comes to kids, having less financial freedom or options because we're paid less. So when things go wrong in the relationship or when we need to pivot or make different decisions for ourselves and for our offspring, we are more restricted because we don't have access to the same money or the same support network or the same resources in terms of jobs and opportunities that we get. And in return, men simply have more freedom. <laughs> you know, they, they're able to move about and move in the world differently because someone else is taking on that responsibility for their freedom. And similarly, when we're talking about blackness, when we're talking about black womanhood, talking about any other identity that is marginalized and layered onto blackness, that's a similar dynamic where someone is paying the consequence and the price for someone else's freedom. And ultimately that freedom gives the privileged class more access to time and more access to freedom and, and other resources that ultimately make life more enjoyable and give their lives more meaning. And ultimately that is tied to grief and fear of loss or some subtle awareness that there is a reality in which A, that safety and that time is gone, um, and B, that our time is limited. So, you know, people desire to make the most of the limited time that they are given, often at the expense of others and often without thinking about who is making this possible and why. Yeah, I think that how you correlate time with space and freedom and accessibility to to the possibilities of life is fascinating. And the issue of Victorian class narratives and strict roles that everyone feels totally locked into. I enjoy watching those kind of dramas as well. And it always strikes me how these people are so locked into those roles. And there's almost always somebody who is bucking the system and thus causing 
great consternation to everybody else who can't even imagine anything outside of those narrow parameters that everyone is stuck in and how the upper class often doesn't need to do anything at all in any responsible way and can essentially do anything they please or nothing if they so desire while the working classes do all the work, bear all the responsibility and all the burdens of the consequences of not having any time. I can really see how there's tremendous amount of grief in not having the time and space and freedom to live one's own dream. And back in those times, to have a dream for most people was a luxury that was not allowed to them at all. And that anytime anybody ever mentioned having a dream, everybody, even including the people who loved them the most, would just crush it, would jump on them and say, child, you can't have such dreams. And I would also love for you to talk about intersectional complexity and how that determines our social location. And especially these days when there is so much more um, intersectional complexity coming to light and people acknowledging these new um, new variances from the old norms. And also how important it is for us today to be mindful of our own and each other's unique complexities that could really allow each other pathways for the kind of freedom and time to be authentically who we all are truly are. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about your, your initial comment. Uh, do you watch Downton Abbey, by the way? Yes. <laughs> yeah, me yeah. too. I was thinking about re-watching it, actually. Um, I'm glad to be talking to someone else who also enjoys those shows. I, I like what you said about those dreams being crushed, and I appreciate your reflection on the folks typically the marginalized, lower on the totem pole and the class system having to suffer more. And, you know, the rich people not even having to struggle that hard to, to keep the, the reins on. And I think that's how it works today as well. You know, people who are experiencing white privilege, white male privilege, white straight male privilege, like, you know, the more privileges someone is given in an oppressive system, the less they have to a, think about what is going on, and B, be concerned about the system being toppled over. And I, I've experienced that in my own life as a black woman, to be frank. I have experienced just the level of direct violence I've personally experienced from, you know, straight white men has been significantly less than the violence that I've experienced from, say, white men or black men who are aware of how much they have to lose within the system and will fight tooth and nail even when being oppressed by the same system to ensure that they don't lose the few privileges that they have. Whereas, you know, just throughout my life and my career in the educational system, I mean, again, I've definitely encountered <laughs> emotional and psychological violence from straight white men specifically, but it's often been much more subtle. And, you know, I, I've gotten the sense that these particular folks that I've interacted with haven't felt the need to have their grips as tight on me or to be as concerned about what I'm gaining or how I'm coming across. And obviously there are many exceptions, many, 
but just in general, that is personally my experience in terms of how that violence and that fear is expressed. And when I think about the example that we were talking about with the, the Victorian class system, you know, it's not that the wealthy are unaware, you know, I mean, it's just that their awareness is very much dulled because they don't have to see the layers and they don't have to experience it. And for people who are marginalized and who fight to maintain these systems, it's just really incredible to me how far humans will go to give life meaning. And again, that is an extension of grief and fear of loss as well. So, you know, within these systems where you use the example of folks who are clearly being oppressed, but then squashing the dreams of other oppressed people, whoever is bucking the system, I feel that it's because people have to feel that even with as little as they are given, that their life ultimately has meaning, and that meaning comes from the role that they are given in society and the role that they are prescribed. And without that, there's a loss of self when there is so little self given to begin with. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And you wrote that, like many African-American children, you experience suicidal ideation at a young age and that it took time to get used to life, that it wasn't until you were 25 that you knew what it was to want to be alive. Could you tell us about that? Yeah. You know, it's something I think about every day, honestly. I, what, 29, um, going on 30, and, you know, I definitely had bouts of severe I mean, I mean severe suicidal ideation where it breaks my heart to think about the number of times I could almost not be here, even within this four-year span. And in the four-year span, it was directly related to the downstream effects of racism and sexism. In the book, I give examples of, you know, the complications in my job from people not wanting to do business with Brisha over the phone and then having to morph and flatten myself into Brie, which is a, a name that you know, white business owners within the first five seconds of speaking to someone feel more comfortable with and that implicit bias doesn't come up and how that's tied to my ability to pay rent, have health insurance, to have a healthy, stable life with my wife. So yeah, even within that four period span, there has been significant amounts of depression and what I feel have been just spiritual violence that I've had to move through as a result of being a black woman in America. And I know from an early age, you know, just from the moment we're born, whether we're talking about the mortality rate of, of infants or a black infants or black mothers, you know, we are facing death literally from the moment we exit our mother's womb and the, the poor access of medical care and what racism fails to accomplish physically, there's a constant assault against our spiritual and psychological well-being where racism will, you know, attempt to take black life in that way. So for me, I mean, it was a variety of, uh, of things and experiences, you know, whether it's being more vulnerable as a result of my gender and race, more vulnerable to physical acts of violence or the threat of physical acts of violence or having seeds of 
doubt and despair consistently planted along my path when I, you know, strive to actualize myself for my dreams of being a writer or I think about, you know, in the fourth or fifth grade when I wanted to be a lawyer and aspire to be president or be in public office and then having my white teachers and my peers, you know, just look at me and say they would never vote for me. It doesn't matter if I'm Democrat or Republican. Like they, they simply would not ever vote for me or could not see me in the way that I saw myself because I am a black woman or was a black girl at the time. Or, you know, if it was being really good at math when I was younger and having white teachers intentionally nitpick things to give me lower scores, even when the answer was correct. So I then began to doubt myself and then begin to wonder, is there a space for me to be who I see myself as? Like, is there space for Brucia to actually exist when everywhere I turn, there are people constantly, essentially throwing a wet blanket on this fire and this flame? Or, you know, being an adult and finding you know, having to work twice as hard or three times as hard to barely get half as much as people who I see are nowhere near as qualified as me simply because of the color of my skin. And then knowing I have to enter into these environments where I'm consistently feeling disrespected for the sake of my physical survival, even though every time I come into these spaces, my spirit and my psyche feels assaulted. And that daily battle and not being able to exit that really weighs heavily on one's spirit and it pushes it pushed me closer to death than I ever was towards life and it took so much effort on my part that could have gone toward building um, the life that I wanted or, or certain dreams just to stay alive and then it took honestly it took a lot of communities and people specifically white people who had the resources and had the time to invest in me, invest heavily to help bring me closer to that state of life. Could you talk about how they were investing in you and supporting you to have that experience? Yeah, I, oh man, where do I start? Because I have a quote here from the book that relates directly to that. So I would love to hear your experience with that, because to me, this addresses something that we all need to understand, because you talk about healing from this kind of oppression and grief as requiring a mutual effort. Absolutely. And that's really what it took, you know, and the white people who came into relationship with me and stayed in relationship and devoted profound amounts of resources, like time, in cases where it could be, it was money, certainly emotional energy and certainly love and presence. You know, they didn't come into that relationship fully primed and ready to be the perfect person that I, as Brisha, as a black woman, needed them to be. But they came primed and ready to be fully present and to not ghost when things got difficult for me or for themselves. And that is the first step and something that I feel is incredibly important, especially for white people with good intentions who desire to be good people, a desire to show up for you know dismantling racial injustice. 
you know, frequently what I notice is that people enter into these spaces and they try to take on everything at once. And a lot of that has to do with ego. And then they end up getting overwhelmed and burned out and they end up causing, you know, a lot of damage to the people that they were meant to show up for, i.e. black people, black women. And then they don't actively practice doing the things in their own life to bring about that systemic change. And the white people who were there for me, you know, they were present enough, not only to my experience, but to their own experience, to really take things a step at a time and a day at a time, such that they didn't get overwhelmed by the the larger picture, so that they could actually, you know, play their role and rectifying the consequences of, you know, white supremacy and in certain cases patriarchy, certain cases homophobia, by becoming the change that they wanted to see, you know, and enacting that change within their own lives, which of course impacted my life. So some examples would be, you know, white folks who I'm thinking of one white woman in particular who I actually did not like, (laughs) if I'm going to be frank. (laughs) Yeah, I'm hoping that you would tell some stories, give us some examples of of things, you know, as we go through this. Awesome. Okay, thanks. Uh, Yeah, there is this white woman I, I did not like. I'm not going to give away her identity, but she was in a position of power in grad school. So everyone loved her. And I could not, for the life of me, figure out why, you know. And I remember continuing to show up to this woman's office to figure it out. I was talking to my friends, and I swore that the only reason they liked her was because she was a white woman who smiled a lot. I did not get it. And I remember going to her, maybe after the fourth or fifth time, because she had done something that had pissed me off. Whatever it was, I remember interpreting it in the lens of my experience as a black woman. Like, this is a white woman doing, an older white woman doing a very older white woman thing, and this is how it impacted me, so I'm going to let you know how I feel about this. And she was ready, you know, she listened, uh, and she was clearly impacted. I didn't say anything disrespectful. I didn't yell, I didn't curse or, or anything. But I was clearly very upset. And I remember her not being put off by that. I remember her, you know, even though I could tell in her face that she was emotionally impacted by my experience, she didn't avoid me. She, you know, didn't punish me. She didn't get angry. She didn't start crying. She didn't ghost our relationship. Instead, she actively took steps. And I don't mean like short-term steps. I mean over the time I was within that program, up until now, to be there for me as a black woman struggling within that institution. You know, she made herself available outside of class and and the institution on a personal level when there were situations where she could intervene and change things because she saw the harm that it was causing. She would do that, and she would not do it in a way that, you know, would make me feel like I owed her something or add to a sense of guilt for me. You know, she did it because she felt called to do them like, One time she intervened with with speaking to a professor who was very insensitive about the way that he was receiving a paper I had written. And the paper was great, you know. I'd taken the paper to to multiple conferences at other universities. It was very well received. But I decided to focus more on my experience as a black woman using a philosophical concept instead of just being a scholar and this philosopher. I think it was Derrida. 
but she advocated for me to be able to bring my experiences and the conversations with these philosophers. When I was going through an incredibly emotionally draining time because of things going on in my personal life, which were impacted by my race and gender, she was available and open to what she did not know and then doing work in her own time such that it wasn't on me and my time of need to teach her things that she could readily know. And when something was hurtful or if I didn't receive something with the intention with which she meant it, I felt comfortable in the relationship to say that. And I knew that she would stay there and and continue working on building this relationship with me. Does that feel like a clear enough example? Yes, that was great. Thank you. So did you ever figure out what it was about her that was triggering you? Yeah, I think one thing that I experience in relationship to white women specifically is passive aggressiveness. Even with, if it's not meant to be passive aggressiveness, I, I've noticed that white women frequently have difficulty saying what they actually mean. And for black people, that can be quite dangerous. It's, it's kind of like, you know, receiving a smile on the front end, but not being quite sure what was happening <laughs> on the back end. And next thing you know, someone is sticking a knife in your gut or in your back behind a pillow with a smile on their face. So I remember, like, there were comments that she would make to me specifically and also expecting me to be a strong black woman. So I remember that being a part of what I did not appreciate about her expectations of me and how she was treating me. So she knew something about me just based on some of the papers that I'd written and obviously had seen me interact with my peers and with professors and whatnot. And I was the only black woman in the program. And, you know, she had expectations for me to just endure it, you know. And then she frequently seemed disappointed when I would not or could not endure what came along with being the only black woman in the program. So that was a large part of why we just weren't clicking. You know, I I felt that unfair expectation. And then I felt what I perceived to be passive aggressiveness and a lack of trust. Just because, you know, smiling white women who don't say what they mean is frequently triggering and uh, a cause for concern for many black people professionally and personally. Well, I would imagine you you talk about it in various ways, how well-meaning white women who are essentially unaware of their own discomfort in these situations and don't know how to deal with it, are basically uncomfortable relating with you. Could you talk about your experience with that and how you've come to realize where that stems from, even though that they are essentially well-meaning? And you talk about how, because they're so unaware of what's going on inside themselves and that they often kind of offload their own discomfort onto you somehow. And I would love for you to to talk about that and explain how they end up offloading the burdens that they don't know how to handle for themselves onto you and how this is often done by well-meaning white people onto black people. Yeah. I'll start with white women specifically since that's where we started and give an example and then I will give an example of some white men and just, you know, folks in general. So you have a better sense of how black women are not even expected, but required 
to move through that. An example would be that during my training for clinical pastoral education, I had a white supervisor, a white female supervisor, who was, you know, just simply unequipped to deal with my experience as a black woman. But a lot of what I was encountering on my unit, you know, I gave examples in the book of Janisha and her child, Dora, and other black women I was serving and having to be present as a black woman while watching the medical team give unfair treatment to these black women. This white woman who's my supervisor, she just was not equipped to deal with it. Well, tell us what happened and what that meant for you and how you felt about it. You know, for example, she would use the term blacks a lot, like the blacks or blacks, regardless of how often she was corrected and was informed that, you know, African-American or black people would be better. And that was a subtle example. But then there was times when I needed her to step up on the unit because I was being iced out for speaking up about racial justice or speaking up about how the team was receiving one of the, the black female patients and how they were categorizing her behavior as aggressive when she was just grieving. So then the team didn't appreciate having me point that out because it made the team, all of them white women, feel bad. And as a result, you know, they would cry, they would be upset, you know, they would call me sensitive, they would say I'm not being a team player, you know. Meanwhile, you know, presumably we're all women, we're all on this mother-baby unit. That solidarity that's supposedly supposed to come through within the feminist movement did not come through when it came to showing up for this black woman. And obviously that impacted me, and I took this to my supervisor. And my supervisor, you know, while she showed support, as best she could behind closed doors. You know, she agreed with me on, you know, what I was pointing out, um, even though she hadn't thought about it. When it came time to have that meeting with the people on my unit, and, and I'm a student, and again, the this, this supervisor, she is in a position of power and can speak to those other people who are in position of power. It, it was like she, she emotionally ghosted. She said nothing, and she did nothing. So when the meeting was happening, she seemed so uncomfortable with taking a side or, or saying what she felt was unjust, even though she's hearing it come out of their mouths, like the, the things that I shared with her in terms of how they're talking about this patient who was grieving. And even though she supposedly knew because of her training that that's not how you talk about a grieving person, that's not how you shape grief, especially when we're talking about a woman losing her child, she just basically sat there and smiled because she was, uncomfortable with shaking up that relationship or those relationships with her colleagues, which then left me returning to the unit amidst both my team members' grief, you know, those doctors and their nurses, and their grief, and dealing with both the loss of infants um, and the suffering that's on the mother-baby unit, plus the grief of having their racism exposed to them. And I'm navigating the grief of the parents that I'm serving. And I'm navigating my own grief without the support of someone who was supposed to be supportive. I mean, I was a student, first and foremost. And I would love for you to talk about anger as a form of grief and how white people are terrified by black people's anger and expressions of rage and how... Black women, in particular, often get labeled as angry black women to 
completely marginalize them when they express any anger in response to mistreatment or, or things like that, and, and how they're suffering under these burdens of having to not only bear their own grief, but to protect white people from the discomfort that they're experiencing. Um, I will start with the question of white people experiencing anger as a result of their grief, and then I'll move into what that means for black women and our relationship to anger. For myself, especially in my career, anything tied to my career, that includes being in the academy to, to get certifications um, so that I can you know, have a job. The way that I frame things to white people has to always be conscientious of their triggers and their anger. And the ironic part is that you know, people, specifically black women, who are thought to be socially conscious or conscientious, are labeled as triggered or difficult when, you know, for black women, we're constantly moving through the, the triggers of white folks. Like I mentioned in the book an example of writing an article about men who are abusive and then having white men reach out to me and say, well, it's not only women and you should check your assumptions and yada, yada, yada. And, you know, the analogy I gave was, okay, well, you know, fast food doesn't only cause heart issues, it can also impact risk of cancer. But you wouldn't email a heart surgeon who wrote specifically about the impacts of fast food on your heart and say, well, you should have written about cancer. Like, this isn't actually about me and what I wrote. It has everything to do with your anger and your unwillingness to sit with how what I wrote challenges you to see yourself in a different light. What I wrote makes you not feel like a good person. And because you don't feel like a good person in relationship to women or, you know, in relationship to black people, I, as a black woman, am now responsible for the fact that you no longer feel good. And you are going to shift that responsibility because your social location allows you to do that and place it onto me. And as a result, like, I have this angry email, um, you know, in my inbox for someone who can't sit with their own grief and discomfort at having their identity challenged because having their identity challenged is its own form of loss. It brings about its own form of grief. I mean, hell, this even happened recently as I've just gotten an assistant with, you know, just becoming more busy with my day job and teaching and book talks. I've had white men who have reached out to me expecting to have access to me directly or expecting me to say yes to every opportunity presented because the idea is that because I'm a young black woman, I don't have any opportunities or I don't have anything better than what they are offering me. So if my assistant says no or if they don't hear back immediately, then I receive angry um, and or just disrespectful responses because they feel like they have been socialized to feel so entitled to my time or emotional energy. And that happens at work or in programs, too. You know, when I draw boundaries and say, you know, no, I'm not going to have lunch with you or no, I'm not going to go to that event. And the reason I'm saying no more often than not um, is because of my experience with that person. Like, because I'm just emotionally exhausted. I suspect 
that there will be racist or, or sexist things shared. And I, I put up with it all day because I get paid to do that. And I'm just tired. I don't you know, want to do that at my off time. And then I, I'm labeled as difficult for having boundaries or, you know, being inaccessible or, or being unwilling to essentially be a pawn in a game that allows other people to feel better about themselves. Meanwhile, I feel absolutely horrible. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it reflects on what you were talking about earlier about marginalized and oppressed people not having the same amount of time to do the kind of healing and gain the rest that they need from all of these experiences. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and if you think about it, these relationships matter. I mean, it's not just being upset or it's not just receiving that anger in that moment. That matters. It's like, okay, well, what is the consequence of that anger have on my work environment? You know, when I come back tomorrow, what is the consequence of that anger have when this person has to communicate to someone I'm trying to do business with or, or someone or another colleague who I need to work with, a partner with for this event, whatever it might be. I mean, there are downstream effects, whether or not they actually come to fruition, just the fact that this is a consideration that black women have to have when in our interactions and, and when maneuvering through the, these circumstances, it's emotionally and physically and psychologically exhausting. And that's emotionally and psychologically exhausting for anybody to have to deal with that kind of a thing. Absolutely. And it ties to anger. You know, you were asking about the angry black woman and that, you know, the way that we are cast or, or stereotyped as being difficult and angry as a way to further strip us of our humanity when that anger and that rage is a direct result of the grief and of the situations that we feel that we can't extract ourselves from and the things that we feel that we can't say no to for the sake of our direct survival. Mm-hmm. And those things, you know, they build up and there isn't time or space to heal. And sometimes, you know, we are just labeled uh, angry unnecessarily for drawing boundaries like the, <laughs> the situations I just named. But, you know, ultimately, if you're looking at the stages of grief, anger is a stage of grief. And rage is an extension of anger that has gone unattended and unhealed. But because black women have been so dehumanized for so long, and that's just such a... That, that's just such a part of our society that it, it's expected and, and not thought about, you know, that, that trope of the angry black woman isn't even viewed in relationship to grief and humanity. It's totally extracted. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of an inflicted spiritual death, in a sense, to which you really have to stand up for yourself. And as you say, every time that you do stand up for yourself, you get shot down and accused of being an angry black woman. And I see it in society how even for well-meaning people on a subconscious level, white people expect black people to accept being second-class citizens in relation to them. You know, what does it take? What is the common thread with white people that you have worked with who are able to sit with their own pain and grief and be present with their discomfort and sit with your pain and and they're not scared away from it and don't feel that kind of 
privilege over you, the kind of privilege that that even if it's not intended, just inflicts tremendous harm on others. So what does it take for people to wake up? What does it take for people to realize how incredibly important it is for them to be able to sit with their own grief and pain in order to be able to sit with other people's grief and pain? Um, I think it starts with acceptance, acceptance of self and where they are. So I think the phrase you used is thinking they are better or over black people. When I say acceptance, part of it is accepting you do feel that way. You know, whether or not you know it and whether or not it's conscious and whether or not it's intentional doesn't matter. There's no way you were brought up in the society with all of these you know, implicit messages that have raised you to be who you are so that you can move through the world as a white person, as a man, straight person, whatever it might be. Like, those things were given to you. I feel that way as a cis person. You know, I consciously do not harbor feelings of transphobia, but I know by virtue of the fact of being cis, like, there are so many things that I do and so many ways I've been socialized and therefore so many ways that I am where I'm transphobic, whether I want to be or not. And accepting that reality about myself such that when one of my trans friends brings that to my attention, like, hey, Brisha, what you just said was transphobic or how you're behaving is transphobic, you know, accepting it about myself means that I don't get angry and place the responsibility on them. It means that I don't ghost. It means that I can listen. And it's okay to feel sad by actions that hurt someone else. Like if my friend came to me and said that something I did was hurtful and transphobic, I would feel sad, you know? And I, I mentioned this because I know that there are a lot of memes about white tears and, you know, how <laughs> white people will basically take their grief, you know, the grief that they encounter from realizing systemic injustice and basically put it back on the black people by crying. So, and like, you can't be as direct it's harder to be as direct with someone who's crying when ultimately the person who is suffering is whoever is experiencing systemic trauma. But it's okay to feel sad and to accept that. And it's okay to recognize your grief in that moment and to accept it. And that acceptance and that realization and willingness to not run from that grief and that willingness to, you know, not run from who you are and how you've been socialized is crucial to building a new path forward because acceptance doesn't have to be complacency and you can recognize that something isn't your fault because this isn't about blame or shame. Like it's not my fault that I was socialized to be a cis woman, right? So I don't feel blame or shame around that and moving beyond that so that I can actually take responsibility for the privileges that I've been given and take responsibility for how I'm showing up in relationship to my trans friends so I can add to our relationship so it's healing so I can make a change in society is incredibly important. And there's also the element of how when we really deeply attend to our own grief so that we can attend to other people's grief, that it opens up a deeper sense of self-acceptance and empathy for ourselves and others that has no basis until we actually sit with our own grief and pain to the point where we're able to recognize it and be with it 
in others as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I've worked alongside many, many chaplains who use the term, you know, being with suffering or, or being present, and it has no actual consequence in terms of what they're doing in terms of actually showing up for the people they are sitting beside. You know, they, they can be physically beside someone and ultimately not there because they are more concerned about being nice or, you know, more concerned about smiling or more concerned about superficial things that don't actually have an impact on how the person who's suffering is receiving that presence. You know, while they're actively avoiding the anger of that grieving person. Yeah, I've seen that plenty of times. Or while they're actively ignoring a part of that person's identity that they don't respect. Like, you know, I've I've worked with chaplains who have said things like, oh, LGBTQ people are defective, but I love you. You know, I I, I love LGBTQ people. I, I love everybody in the name of Christ and the name of the Lord, but I'm going to use this term and I harbor this belief that is, disrespectful to your personhood and how can I really be with you if I don't see you if I I don't acknowledge you as a person worthy of the love that I say that I have or worthy of my presence yes yes Um, you have a graduate degree in theological studies and you write about your attraction to the theology of Paul Tillich Mm -hmm. and I really appreciated that a lot. I would love for you to talk about his theology and what appealed to you about it and how it fits into all of this. Yeah, this is going to get really philosophical so, <laughs> because my my relationship is with Tillich is, I found him through grad school, but I continue to follow his work and delve more deeply just because of my own suffering. I believe I mentioned in the book that I feel that Black people are inherent philosophers because we are constantly driven by some existential awareness because our life and our body and our spirits are constantly under threat. And for me, having grown up Southern Baptist, I had a lot of difficulty reconciling the big God up in the sky who's omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. You know, that just wasn't working for me given the atrocities I had witnessed and, you know, what I had experienced personally, let alone what I was seeing within my chaplaincy work. I couldn't reconcile it, and I was struggling. And that's part of what drew me to Buddhism. I started practicing Buddhism in my early 20s. And then I I found Tillich during graduate school, and the way that he talked about God was much more profound than anything I had ever read within the Christian theologies that were presented to me in my Southern Baptist tradition. So he talked about God as, he uses this term called the ground of being. And for him, God is not a person, uh, which is really interesting because a lot of the, the theologians I appreciate, including Tillich, are atheists in their own way. You know, they believe in God, but they don't believe in God as a person or a being. The way that he described God was essentially power itself. You know, the power that has the potential to create being. And the more I thought about creation, the more I thought about 
violence and destruction. And I started reading more of his work. So I believe what I quoted was systematic theology, where he talked about, you know, God as the, the ground of being. And he talked about the existential awareness of being human and how that existential awareness can be used to drive us closer to, to God as that power of being. And that drive, he calls it the condition of an estrangement. Is this at all helpful? I feel like. Yes. This, uh, okay. Yes. <laughs> right. I have notes on, on that, you know, grief as a condition of estrangement. Yeah. Keep going. You're, you're doing great. Okay. So, yeah, he talks about the condition of estrangement. And basically, estrangement comes into place when we are separated from that power of being, which is necessary. You know, it's necessary. When we're born, we are ultimately removed from some power of being. And we, as we grow, we move further and further away from it unless we make an actual effort to come back. And the way that I looked at that, especially with my Buddhist practice, is that coming back is a sort of coming back to ourselves and coming back to our relationship to our, our grief and the reality of impermanence. So Tillich talks about how estrangement is necessary. It is absolutely necessary in order for us to have any sort of meaningful relationship with God, who, again, is the power of being. So basically, if we were just born into a relationship and didn't have any will or you know, any temptation or desire to be moved away from that relationship, then that relationship would cease to have meaning because we didn't choose it. It's similar to marriage. Like part of what makes marriage potentially <laughs> a beautiful institution, aside from all the financial and social structures attached to it, is the fact that we are choosing this person and we make a commitment and we willingly return to that commitment every single day. And sometimes it's harder than others, but ultimately it is our choice and our devotion to continue returning to that foundation that we laid when we took those vows. So for Tillich, when he talks about estrangement and how we essentially are moved away from this ground of being in our life source, what makes a potential relationship with, I don't like using the term higher power. I see a lot about who or what I feel God is in the book based on my relationship with Buddhism. But what makes that relationship so profound and so sacred is our ability to return back to it and to use that as a foundation with which we lay the rest of our lives. And for me, again, that foundation is returning back to the reality of impermanence and to our relationship of grief. And instead of using it as something that we run away from, using it as a foundation to build stronger, more meaningful relationships with each other, with our planet, so that we can experience that ground, that ground of being. Mm -hmm. You also use the language of a theology of God as failure, as much as, as a fullness of all experience, and how, if we could include failure into one's notion of God as a ground of being, that it includes failure, and that if we could include failure in that way, it could help us better be able to attend to the kind of grief and acceptance that we'll have to deal with because, as you say, we will eventually lose everything. And you, you also talk about powerlessness in relation to helplessness and how the acceptance of our powerlessness over the impermanence of everything actually brings us a sense of freedom and moves us away from helplessness. Yeah, 
I essentially feel that failure is just, you know, when reality doesn't match our expectations. So if we're able to, to shift our expectations such that it can encompass reality, which again is what presence is about, you know, and acceptance, it's about accepting that reality, then what does failure actually mean? What is the significance of failure if reality and our expectations are aligned? because we aren't willing for something other than what is. I think that oftentimes we sell God short, which is really unfortunate, because the way that we shape, or at least the way that I grew up shaping and understanding God with my Southern Baptist tradition, is through a narrative of absence, without even realizing that that's what's happening. You know, if God can only be these specific things, and if God is absent, like if God can only be omnipotent, and therefore, if you know if God is omnipotent, then my uncle wouldn't die right now because God has the power to heal him. Even though we know that death is a reality, it's an inevitable reality. And at some point, even if God heals my uncle at some point, there will be a point in which his body will not be able to heal. So if we are defining God in relationship to inevitable failure, and therefore in relationship to absence, because it's not possible, then we are really selling God short, and we are not allowing ourselves to experience the fullness of what is and what could be through that ground of being that I was describing. And I think that that relationship to failure, where where people are unable to reconcile their expectations and what they want with what is, A, is tied to one of the Four Noble Truths in Buddhism, which is suffering, and often suffering comes about through desire. And, you know, you desire things that you don't have or that aren't here. Otherwise, you wouldn't desire them, right? So not only does it contribute to suffering, this, I guess, faulty understanding of failure, but it also contributes to us conflating powerlessness with helplessness because they are not the same. And a lot of that has to do with the way, the way that we think of and, and, and imagine God is an extension of how we like to imagine ourselves. So, you know, I I know that the Bible technically says that we are made in God's image, but if I think about omnipotence, humans really struggle with power and control. So what we lack, we hope that some other being, some quote-unquote higher power has. And when there is a lack of control, which is inevitable, because like I said, you know, we are ultimately going to lose everything whether we die in our sleep tonight peacefully or, you know, whether it's because of old age or whether it's because of some circumstance that we can't possibly anticipate, we ultimately will lose everything. So there isn't really any sense of control. It's just an idea, you know. It's, a, it's an idea that perpetuates suffering, and it just creates delusion. But I do think that there's a difference between control and influence. And I, I think that subtle difference is, is also what separates powerlessness from helplessness. When you recognize that you don't have control over most circumstances, um, then recognizing that lack of control doesn't make you feel helpless. When you recognize that you have influence within the boundaries or, or limitations of your power, you recognize that there are moments where... You might feel powerless or like can't bring about the goal that you 
you ultimately want, but you recognize that you aren't helpless. You are doing everything within your ability to bring about the result that you want. So an example would be I can recognize that I can't extend my life indefinitely. You know, I am powerless against the reality of death and mortality. However, that doesn't mean I'm helpless. I know that there are things that I can do to influence my likelihood of having a healthy life. I know that I can exercise. I know that I can eat vegetables today instead of a burger, you know, and these things are influencing the outcome. But ultimately, I can't control it because we all have either read or personally know of stories where there's someone who lives an immaculate life. (laughs) They they eat healthy. They've been vegetarian for 50 years. You know, they sleep well. They are stress-free and are relatively happy. And then, bam, you know, their body outside of their control decides to do something. Maybe it's heart failure. Maybe it's cancer. I don't know. It pops up. And there's nothing they can do to control it. There's nothing that they could have done to control it. It just happens. But they did everything in their influence, which means that they were never powerless. Mm -hmm. So, What about grief as a kind of existential yearning for a sense of wholeness within oneself, you know, outside the realms of control and helplessness and powerlessness, and also how we can use grief in that way of understanding to inform us and to return to scenes of our own traumas and spiritual deaths with a new and broader perspective and the freedom and space to reconstruct our own sense of self outside of old and oppressive narratives and how grief can essentially be seen as a gift in that way. You know, I currently work in tech by day. And whenever I tell people about my experience at end-of-life care, for some reason they tend to treat me like a saint or they respond by saying, oh my gosh, I could never do that. That's so hard. And when I think about it, honestly, I love doing that work. Not that I love the suffering, but grief is so honest. And that is really what made the work a privilege for me. The the circumstances around it, you know, being in an institution and whatnot, that was all stressful and unnecessarily draining. But grief itself can... Because it's so honest and so transparent, when we lean into it, it can teach us so much about building the life that we ultimately want to live, even though we spend, most of us spend our entire lives running from it. You know, if we got in touch with our grief now, then perhaps it can teach us what we actually need or are looking for in our relationships. And what it teaches us could show us that, hey, you know, I need to work on my ego or my relationship to defensiveness or my fear of vulnerability because that is impacting my ability to have the relationships I want. And the reason that that's the case is because I fear loss of respect. Again, that's grief. Or I fear loss of safety because of this other thing that I experienced in my childhood. Again, that's grief. Or maybe it can inspire us to stop wasting time on things that we ultimately don't care about and don't matter. You know, maybe grief can show us this job that I feel meh about or that requires a lot of hours or, you know, in which I don't feel respected is not where I'm going to invest a lot of my emotional energy. Or maybe 
I need to switch work environments or professions, or maybe I need to have a conversation with my boss or my coworker if possible so that we can have a better relationship and then my work can feel more meaningful. So leaning into grief can teach us a lot about what we need to improve the present moment and to actively, you know, right now start experiencing the life that that we want to live. I love that. And it reminded me of something else that you wrote about in the book. And it sounds like that kind of understanding of grief is connected to the experience of what you called infinite depth and the notion of maintaining a consistent access to emotions of infinite depth. So I would love for you to talk about what you mean by emotions of infinite depth, because I also find grief to be a delicious experience at times when I enter in, into it willingly, you know, when I don't feel blindsided by it. Absolutely. I love that adjective. You said delicious. I like it. I like it. Yeah. In fact, this morning, right before I woke up, I had a dream that inspired me to just stay in bed for a while and dive into a state of kind of like a liminal state of grieving. My dream was essentially seeing my mother, who had passed away a few years ago, walking down the street in my old neighborhood in New York City, or one of my old neighborhoods, um, with a walker, very slowly, very frail, white hair, wearing a nightgown on the street. And it just brought up a deep sense of grief because I, I had this realization that I could be in that same place in the not-too-distant future. And so instead of running from it, I mm -hmm. decided to dive into it. I love that. So again, emotions of infinite depth, what do you mean by that, or where does that come from? I really appreciate that story you just shared, because it's similar to my own, except the example I'm going to use isn't grieving someone who is gone, it's someone who is here and who I'm fortunate enough to see every day. I begin every single morning with grief, every single morning. And this isn't something that anyone needs to pity me for, so sorry for, I'm, I'm grateful for it. It's At this point, you know, it's probably a practice I've cultivated intentional. Every morning, I look at my wife and I am so freaking grateful that I get to wake up and start my day with this person. And I am keenly aware that this is one less day that we have together. I don't know when will be our final day, you know, that could come about for a variety of reasons, but I am so freaking grateful <laughs> because I love this woman so much. And that love that I feel for her is unconditional. And that unconditional love is what I mean about when I say infinite depth, you know, like that feeling is so profound, but I know it is not infinite and it can't be infinite by virtue of the fact that every day is one less day that we have together. At some point, both of us will die. You know, neither of us will be here. And that love, I mean, the love and the state that it is, 
how I'm experiencing it, even though it had unconditional depth, this experience that I'm having in this form could never be infinite. And that doesn't make it any less significant. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So you're talking about the difference of like infinite breadth versus infinite depth. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I love that. I can totally relate to that because, uh, yeah, I, I reflect on my most recent relationship that ended in actually a very beautiful way. And I get to grieve that love in an actually very beautiful and delicious way. That even though I've lost the relationship outwardly, I feel like it's actually allowed me to deepen it inwardly and how it's so easy to project love onto other people when it's really more of an inner dynamic that's going on inside of ourselves. Yeah. Mm. You write that the purpose of this book is to guide people toward freedom. What do you mean by freedom? I think, for me, freedom is acceptance and the ability to choose where I want or need to go based on where I am and where I'm starting. And when we're constantly at odds with ourselves and at odds with the world because we haven't come to terms with our own relationship to grief that not only perpetuate unnecessary suffering but it keeps us trapped and it keeps us tied to this illusion of freedom that just doesn't exist this illusion of absolute freedom where we can do anything and everything which is kind of you know where we are now because we don't accept who we are and where we are in our relationship to grief we, we have this illusion of absolute freedom we're constantly striving towards. You know, it's impossible, and it's a result of our suffering. And as a result of it, we trap other people in our suffering. And other people become pawns in this reality that doesn't exist. You know, we try to trap people into low-paying jobs. We trap people into relationships in, in which they feel less than and we can feel more powerful, whether it's you know, the secretary who gets berated because she's a woman or the black person who we're upset with because they have boundaries or the LGBTQ person who we see walking down the street holding hands or being affectionate and reminds us that love can take a form outside of the love we experience and are accustomed to. So, yeah, I just invite the listener to lean into that grief and to accept it and to be open to where it could take you and how it can expand the way you experience freedom. And there's one more line that, that I love that I would love to ask you about, and that is, hope is born only through the birth and destruction of absolute despair. Yeah. I think if you look at people throughout histories or even examples of people, whether you're, you're looking at the Bible or looking at the Israelites or you're looking at Jewish people who have experienced profound amounts of suffering and oppression or African-American folks, LGBT community, there has been so much oppression 
and trauma and crushing of possibility and yet there is still hope and there's still life because these people have had to reinvent themselves so many times and in order to do that there has had to be numerous deaths and equally as many rebirths and that has happened through the reality of hope that hope was born out of it's the consequence of having possibilities and realities totally crushed such that they've had to rebuild in order to live again. And that has been born out of a grief. And frequently when we look at hope and we think about it, we just think of hope as this beacon of light and this holy positive experience without connecting it to the many moments of death and birth and despair that had to occur in order for hope to be revived. Yes, thank you for that. What would you suggest for people who know they've got unattended grief lurking in their unconscious affecting them but aren't sure what to do or where to begin with it and don't really have a sense of what it is. Hmm. So I teach a course where I want people to do that. My first suggestion, just getting started, if people are comfortable, is delving into a mindfulness and meditation practice to get oneself comfortable with leaning into one's full experience. And then from there... You know, it's really a step at a time in terms of building what comes next. Brescia, thank you so much for talking with me. This has been such a delicious conversation. It's been a pleasure, Tonio. Thank you for the questions and for thoroughly uh, reading the book and giving me the opportunity. And I appreciate that you have such a philosophical mind. Well, I've really appreciated getting to hear your philosophical thoughts and not only philosophical, but they're clearly grounded in your own personal experience. Thank you. My guest has been Brescia Wade. She's a writer, grief expert, a Buddhist chaplain, and a birth doula, and the author of this wonderful new book that we've been talking about, Grieving While Black, an anti-racist take on oppression and sorrow. Do you have a website or any kind of things available for people who want to find out more about grief and your work? Absolutely. You can go to Brescia Wade, that's just my first and last name, .com. Or if anyone is interested in one of my online classes to delve deeper into how to put all these thoughts into practice to show up more fully for racial justice, go to omnipresent.teachable.com. That's also on my website, so... If you go to my website, you can see any course offerings or any upcoming events. Well, again, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. 